When are people going to see that nothing ain't never going to change unless somebody finally makes up his mind to stand up and fight? Damn. Netrich Radio presents Hopping Mad with Will McLeod and Arliss Bunny. Now, here's Will and Arliss. Welcome to Hopping Mad. I'm Will McLeod. And I'm Arliss Bunny. On Thursday, November 2nd, Trump announced his pick for the next Fed chair, Jerome Powell. In his usual aggravating, self-aggrandizing, inappropriate manner, Trump teased the announcement as if it was reality TV using an Instagram video and Twitter. He said things like, people are anxiously awaiting my decision about who the next head of the Fed will be. I have somebody very specific in mind. I think everybody will be impressed. Trump also took an informal poll of GOP senators, something which annoyed many GOP senators because it is so inappropriate. And he asked them to raise their hands. So conservative darling John Taylor won the straw poll, and that's who Pence was pushing. Uh, And, of course, Trump totally ignored it. And in the meantime, um, because he thinks of this as reality TV on Fox Business and in tweets and interviews, he also kept pimping Yellen and talking about how fabulous she was and that he thought he might keep her and on and on. Past Fed chairs who have served a single term like like Yellen has have all been renominated to serve a second term. That is the common way things are done. But of course, Yellen is a woman and she was appointed by Obama and Trump has said he, quote, wants to leave his mark. So basically, Trump wants to pee on the chairman of the Fed. So here we are. According to actually pretty believable reporting, Trump did seriously consider a number of candidates, including Janet Yellen, and apparently she was given a fairly reasonable shot, but um, Secretary uh, of the Treasury Steve Mnuchin is the guy who is understood to have put the quash on that. So who's Jerome Powell? And um, that's what it really comes down to now, because that's who we're going to get. First of all, people call him Jay. They don't call him Jerome. So he's a he's a lawyer. Unlike past Fed chairs who have all been PhD economists, Jay Powell is a lawyer, and he is already a governor. Uh, he serves on the board of the Fed, and he uh, I don't mean a governor of a state. I mean he's on the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. He was originally nominated by Obama in 2012, and the reason that he came to Obama's notice is that in 2011. When the Republicans were trying to not raise the debt ceiling and were threatening to shut down government and uh, put the U.S. into bankruptcy over not raising the debt ceiling or into default, I'm sorry, not bankruptcy, wrong term. Jay Powell, who was a businessman at the time and was um, with a an influential think tank at that point, by that point in his career, he's with an influential think tank in D.C. called the Bipartisan Policy Center. He went basically from door to door to key Republican senators and congressmen with this big binder and basically walked them through why not raising the debt ceiling was a really bad idea. And at the time, he was really seen as an influential voice of calm and sanity. And so that's how he came to President Obama's notice originally. 
And when Obama was trying to break a deadlock on getting approval for new to fill seats on the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, the way he broke it was by nominating both a Democrat and a Republican. And when he and he chose Jay Powell as the Republican, and Powell was overwhelmingly um, approved by Democrats and Republicans alike when he was nominated originally in 2012, and then um, again in 2014. He also served in the Treasury Department of George H.W. Bush. So he does have um, a fair amount of experience, but he is uh, a wealthy investment banker. He was formerly with the Carlyle Group. Um, he is probably the most uh, wealthy Fed chair since uh, a guy way back at the end of the 30s. And um, he also, you know, kind of on the flip side of that, he's active with the Nature Conservancy. So this is somebody who, he isn't all one thing, which is a little bit encouraging. And um, he is known, he's known for urging calm and restraint. He's known for being mild-mannered. Um, he's said to be an excellent listener who can, and this is like a party trick, but apparently he can repeat your sentences to you backwards. Uh, which I find entertaining. Uh, he's considered by everybody on both sides of the aisle to be a consensus builder, which is, you know, fairly hopeful and a good idea for a Fed chair. And this is a quote from um, Richard Fisher, who uh, basically um, used to sit next to Jay in the, um, when Fisher was on the Fed Board of Governors. And he says, Jay doesn't promote himself like so many do in Washington. He likes to do the unglamorous jobs. And of everything that has been used to describe him, I really liked that quote because I think that it gave me the most hope about who this guy is. And uh, he's worked very closely with Janet Yellen over the past few years. He's never voted against her on the uh, while in, during his term at the Fed. Fed insiders say he's done everything possible to learn technical details, drill down difficult, weedy subjects of neoliberal, granted, neoliberal macroeconomics, but he has, he's a guy who is known for doing his homework, for asking for more information, for asking for more detail. And he said in a speech in this year, in March, he said, in my experience, the best outcomes are reached when opposing viewpoints are clearly and strongly presented before decisions are made. And if there's any one thing a Fed chair could say to me at this point in time under, you know, somebody who's going to be appointed by President Trump to sort of make me have a little faith. That's a pretty good sentiment for him to have expressed, I think, at least in my opinion. And, you know, remember, you know, back to the debt ceiling standoff in 2011, you know, Jay Powell was wandering around in, com in, you know, in Congress saying, this is why you know, it is necessary to raise the debt ceiling. This is why it's not a bad idea. This is why it's important to do it. Let's be calm. Let's be considered. Trump, citizen Trump, was tweeting, the debt limit cannot be raised until Obama's spending is contained, proving, of course, without a doubt that Trump then and no doubt still has no idea what the debt ceiling actually is. Um, it is thought by most that Powell will continue Yellen's policies and um, that the difference will be um, a little bit more of a what they call a, a quote-unquote Wall Street touch, but we really don't have any evidence of that in particular. Um, he's 
both advocated for Fed increased oversight in some areas, but also uh, he has tried to get some changes in the Volcker rule. The Volcker rule um, severely limits basically gambling by commercial banks. In other words, it um, the Volcker rule is meant to separate commercial banking from investment banking, but his proposals are not really about deregulation. By the time the Volcker rule got completed, and Amanda Werner from um, Americans for Financial Reform has talked about this, by the time um, all the lobbying interests and everybody had finished it, finished with the Volcker rule, and it got you know put into the bill, it was this. It's this massive, difficult, complex, you know, piece of legislation to deal with. And what, as best I can parse out, what Powell has proposed is not deregulation, but is to try to make it more understandable and and more possible for banks to actually comply with. Because right now it's difficult to comply with because it's difficult to understand. And the other thing that is seen as a Wall Street touch is that he does favor and feels that the role of regulatory boards should be in oversight, not in management. And I have to say, he's not wrong there. In other words, an oversight board should be doing oversight and managers should be doing management. The problem, of course, is that so much of the regulatory management in the federal government as it stands right now is is way too weak. And that's why oversight boards have been stepping in. So I don't know if he will evolve in that position or if that is a settled law for him, so to speak. Earlier in this year, Trump appointed another Carlisle Group alum, and I talked to you about this on the show, a guy named Randy Quarles, to the Fed board to oversee bank regulation. And and that's appalling because Quarles is absolutely dedicated to deregulation. But we haven't heard Powell express similar leanings. So, you know, we may be um, lucky there. We All we can do is cross our fingers and um, pressure him when the time comes. Powell is thought to be a non-political choice, and he's definitely a safe bet for confirmation. When Trump gave his brief introduction of Powell at the White House on Thursday, Powell then, you know, came to the podium and he said he was committed to making the best decisions based on the best available evidence in the long-standing tradition of monetary independence. And I liked that because Trump, of course, has been trying to influence the Fed. And I liked the idea that that Powell, even in that speech, standing next to Trump, was willing to say and said out loud and emphasize the importance of the Fed being having monetary independence. Um, the GOP likes that Powell is a Republican. Democrats like that he's not crazy. And uh, he will succeed Yellen in February. So, you know, there were a lot of bad choices to make to fill this position. Yellen would have been um, good, you know, the best possible news under the you know circumstances that we have available to us. But Powell is not bad news. So I think Given the overall scheme of, you know, sort of the new normal under the Trump administration, this is actually a pretty good thing. So uh, we have to keep a close eye out, but um, I am not as discouraged and miserable as I have been about most of the decisions the president has made. Will? So what I want to talk about very 
briefly here in our opening is the most recent drama as it relates to Donna Brazil and Hillary Clinton's campaign and what Elizabeth Warren said. I don't want to come down and say Elizabeth Warren is right, especially when she said that the test right now is for Tom Perez to make sure that the Democratic Party is a party where Democrats work for Democrats rather than Democrats just working for the party. And I think it's important to create a, a DNC that is worth giving money to. I remember at Daily Coast, a lot of people saying that DNC ought to stand for do not contribute. Um, that, that said, that I, I totally agree the DNC needs cleaning up. The allegations made by Donna Brazil appear to be less than truthful, just based on the federal records of Hillary Clinton's spending. Um, and this is from OpenSecrets.org. Hillary Clinton raised 529, uh, almost $530 million. Of that, only $158 million were spent on her own campaign, with another $371 million spent on the DNC and state parties. And of that $371 million, only uh, $107 million were spent on the DNC itself. So when Donna Brazil made the allegation that uh, Hillary Clinton was not spending money on state parties, she was being less than honest. Hillary Clinton spent more on state parties than she spent on her own campaign, according to federal records. Apparently, so, she's actually raised more money for state parties than any other candidate in history. Yeah, it's something around the, the realm of $3 billion uh, with a B in her career of fundraising for Democrats. She's, she's a fundraising machine. That's what she's really, really good at. And she takes that money and gives it to Democrats. So when Donna Brazil was saying all these things about Hillary Clinton choking things off, she also cast herself in this like really, really kind of positive light to sort of say, well, there were problems at the DNC, but none of them were my fault. And I felt so bad about it. And I felt so bad for Bernie. And I, it's a very self-serving piece that she released. And just based on the federal records, it's less than truthful. So I don't want to get back into the primary wars, but I will agree with Elizabeth Warren that there are problems at the DNC. And I will agree that Tom Perez needs to build a Democratic Party that works for Democrats rather than continuing to have a party that Democrats work for. And I think we need to focus on the work ahead of us to guarantee that the Democratic National Committee becomes an institution that we as Democrats can feel comfortable giving our money to rather than one that has been called in the past, as I said earlier, do not contribute. Because there have been longstanding problems with that institution. It was badly mismanaged by Debbie Wasserman Schultz. I think that it's hard to argue with that. But uh, we also need to look at the facts. And, you know, those really aren't coming to light right now. And it's important to look at those facts so that we can make the proper decisions when it comes to fixing the DNC in the future. Um, and in, in service of time, I'm going to end my comments there. Coming up, Arliss? Coming up, Will is going to talk to us about the Virginia elections. Then behind Will, Dave Paquette who is one of our Hopping Mad associates, will be talking to us about opiates. And the interview today is with the absolutely fabulous J.D. Alt about his new book, Low Earth Orbit, here on Hopping Mad.
Welcome back to Hopping Mad. I lived in Virginia for about 10 years of my life, and I'm in the process of moving back now, actually. I love Virginia, and I have a lot of ties to the state. And I've lived in the rural parts of Virginia, and here where I live in D.C., I've got some ties to the more urban parts of northern Virginia. But there's also the cityscapes in in Hampton Roads and in Richmond that have their own identity and their own politics and their own issues that are very separate from the sort of inside the beltway thinking that happens here in in northern Virginia. Um, And to start with, a lot of people are going to try to use the Virginia race as a bellwether for what might happen in 2018. And that's a very bad idea because Virginians are a naturally contrarian group in general. So they tend to vote in ways that upset the uh, natural indicators of the rest of the country. And 538 has a great uh, piece on this. Uh, The conventional wisdom is that when there is a Republican in the White House, they prefer a Democrat. And when there's a Democrat in the White House, they prefer a Republican. Uh, But in recent years, that has kind of changed up a bit. Their polling and their voting doesn't tend to track with national opinions because Virginia races are local and have to do with local Virginia issues. And some of those issues are the culture war that is still being fought, as well as things like energy and coal and the environment. These are issues that pan out in Virginia politics rather a lot. And to talk about coal, one of the real tragedies of what Trump has done is he has said that there will be a comeback for coal. And that has inspired a lot of these rural coal communities that have been depending on the coal industry for centuries. And I mean, not necessarily centuries, but literally going back to the start of the coal mining industry in the United States, they have been mining coal in the, in the coal fields of the Appalachians. And the Obama era jobs programs that were trying to do retraining are being abandoned. And there was a report in Reuters, which we'll link at Hopping Mad, which discussed some of the issues there. And number one, the, the jobs training programs have one major issue, and that's that they don't pay and there isn't a job guarantee afterwards. So if you're someone who's in the coal industry and you have a job right now, you really can't afford to stop working and go to a retraining system and, and get an education for a job that's probably not going to be there. Your options are to work or not work. And so the lack of, of economic support while people are doing these job retraining uh, programs is, is a real problem. And that's compounded by another economic problem where, you know, people aren't moving their businesses out to these areas where there are, is inexpensive, hardworking labor because the labor out there isn't set up for the industries that could move out there right now. So there's no job training success because there are no industries for folks to work in and there's no industries for folks to work in because there's nobody trained to do the jobs. It's a, it's a negative feedback loop that needs to get broken. And I haven't seen anyone suggest policies that could fix that problem, but Trump has made the situation worse by trying to say that there will be some kind of comeback for coal. 
we are at a stage of critical mass when it comes to wind and solar energy right now, where they are becoming cheaper than coal. And natural gas is also cheaper than coal. And natural gas production is only set to expand. There are a couple of companies in the U.S. right now that are expanding coal production, but that's not for thermal coal that feeds power plants. That's for uh, coking material, metallurgical coal, that is created so that it can be used in the creation of steel. And it's a very specific kind of coal that doesn't represent the majority of the coal we have in the United States, but that we have an ample supply of, but not enough to maintain the current coal industry. And after climate change, we're, uh, regulations eliminate coal-fired power plants. That kind of coal will still be mined in small amounts, so it can become the carbon content for high-carbon steel and all steel, really. But it's not going to be burned for energy. And so you have this situation where the demand for metallurgical coal has increased, which is giving some small communities hope that the coal industry is coming back. But the companies that are doing that expansion are divesting themselves of their coal investments so they can focus on natural gas and wind and solar as energy companies. People don't want to own coal right now. Despite that, the, the speeches that Trump has made about the, this uh, coal industry have encouraged them to support conservative candidates and conservative ideas. And that, for a lot of the rural places and for issues similar to it, is the base state of the Virginia election. Now, there also has been those terrorist attacks in Charlottesville. We saw that uh, road attack where a neo-Nazi slammed his car into a group of anti-Nazi protesters and killed one of them, Heather Heyer. And there was a political ad about that, um, which showed a car, a truck with a Confederate flag on it, chasing down uh, Latino and minority children set out by the, uh, I think it's the Latino Victory Fund. Um, it was a Latino political action campaign. And that was poorly timed because of the terrorist attack, which occurred uh, during in New York on, on, on Halloween. So there's some, you know, fighting going on as far as that's concerned and and some upending that's going on in the politics and ed gillespie the republican candidate has gone hard right in his campaigning and very very negative which has uh, triggered a bunch of negative ads in the state um and in response to this whole situation of negative ad flying we also have the libertarian standing up and saying can't we all just get along and have a civil election so it's not clear what effect that libertarian will have on the election right now. One of my criticisms of Northam is that while he has swung back against the sort of dog whistle racism of Ed Gillespie, one of the things that Democrats need to do is not get so totally distracted by the dog whistle racism, sexism and homophobia of the Republicans that we forget to talk about our own ideas and what we want to do for the populations we're trying to serve. Our strategy should be a one-two punch. One, denounce the racism, and then two, announce that our opponents are using these dog whistles because they're out of ideas, and then explain our ideas and what we'd like to do for people who live in our constituencies. That has to be the way that we go. Current polling puts Northam ahead. The RCP, which is a right-wing poll aggregator, Average has uh, Northam 
2.8 points ahead as of Friday. And that includes Rasmussen Reports and the polling company, which both lead extremely right. Uh, the more standard pollsters, uh, Washington Post, um, and then uh, Quinnipiac and, and others have Northam leading by significant margins between five and the, and the Quinnipiac poll is plus 17. Uh, Whoa. And so we have a lot of noise in the polling here. Yeah. And and my hope is that Quinnipiac's correct here. And that was a poll that was uh, October 20th to 25th. Um, well, and Quinnip- Quinnipiac often leans, you know, a bit Republican, but it really comes down to turnout, turnout, turnout. It does. It, it really does come down to turnout. And so um, with the negative turn in the race, with the terrorist attack and that unfortunate ad, with all the chaos here, we're not guaranteed a win when normally this would be the Democrats race to win because there's a Republican in the White House. And that's the fundamentals of the race. Also, the traditional labor uh, voters that would come out for Democrats fairly strongly out in the coal fields have been dwindling due to the destruction of those communities and just the natural economic climate that we have as a nation failed to address nationwide, which has eroded support for Democrats in some of these rural areas that need to be key for a Democratic coalition in a state like Virginia. So I am hopeful about the race, but I would argue that we do need to do a better job of reaching out to voters from across the political, economic, and urban rural spectrums. And that doesn't mean, as some pundits will put it, abandoning people of color and women and the folks that Republicans like to attack. It means that one-two punch. Hit them for being wrong. Remind everyone that they're saying these things because they're out of ideas and then state your case for what you're going to do to make people's lives easier. Northam has done that all right throughout his history, but I really feel like he could be doing it better right now. Um, and if you can help with uh, GOTV uh, work and, and do some calls, I know Democratic Party of Virginia would appreciate the support. That's it for me here on Hopping Mad. Coming up, we have David Paquette on uh, covering some new issues related to opiates and the new report released this week by the Trump administration's commission. And following that, we have a really amazing interview with J.D. Alt here on Hopping Mad. Hi, I'm David Paquette, and I'm going to be talking about the opioid crisis. Buried in among all the other ways he did it, Donald Trump made the news the other day for making a long-promised declaration. Unfortunately, instead of the national emergency that he said he would declare in the opioid epidemic, he produced a watered-down public health emergency. The distinction may seem academic, but it is anything but that. An official national emergency, like the one he promised three months ago, would have paved the way for massive inflows of public money, in the billions, like when devastating earthquakes, floods, or storms strike. On the other hand, the public health emergency 
he declared, gives state governments the ability to tap into a federal emergency fund that currently has about $56,000 in it. (sighs) Also, for the next 90 days, after which the emergency expires and must be redeclared, states are allowed to shift Medicaid money that was previously targeted for some other health purpose in their states over to addiction treatment. So to help addicts, states just have to raid the funding for children's health or mental health or therapy for the disabled or long-term care for the elderly. But whatever they do, it really is. But whatever they do, they need to hurry up and decide who to rob and do it because the 90-day clock is ticking. Uh, As uh, commentator Andrew Kessler put it, they said the house is on fire but then they turned on the lawn sprinklers instead of the fire hydrants. (laughs) The statistics on U.S. drug overdose deaths are shocking, but they're hard to put into perspective. The numbers are still preliminary, but the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, which tracks the causes of illness and death, estimates that between 59,000 and 65,000 Americans died from drug overdoses last year. This is the highest ever number of American drug overdose deaths in a single year. About as many people died of strokes as of drug overdoses, but strokes mainly impact those over 60. Overdose is now the number one most common cause of death for Americans under 50. Comparing the number of last year's overdose deaths to the numbers of other notable causes of death helps to get some sense of the magnitude. It is at least 1,000 more than the number of names that appear on the Vietnam War Memorial Wall in Washington, which represents 16 years worth of war casualties. Seriously? It does, yes. Oh at, at least At least 1,000 and as much as 5,000 more than the number of names on the wall. Uh, moving down a peg, about... 56,000 died on our highways in 1972, which was the peak year for car crash deaths. Down further, 48,000 died of AIDS in 1995, and that was the most lives HIV ever took in in the U.S. in a year. And in 1973, which was the peak for U.S. gun deaths, just under 40,000 died of gun homicide. So while those numbers give us a rough yardstick to measure the opiate deaths. The problem with all these comparison figures is that they represent the worst things ever got to be for each of those other causes of death. With overdoses, we're not even beginning to level off, never mind reach a peak. In fact, the, the graph of the last few uh, years overdose deaths looks like the track of a space rocket being launched. It goes almost straight up. Drug deaths have been rising faster than any period in our history. With at least 163 overdose deaths per day on average, last year's deaths were nearly 20% worse than the year before. It was more than double the number of ODs that happened 15 years ago and more than six times the number that happened 15 years before that when Nancy Reagan assured us that just saying no would soon defeat the problem. Barring a miracle, with a trend like that, we can surely expect last year's awful record to be broken this year. And without concerted action, next year will be even worse. 
And we have not even begun to talk about the 2.5 million addicted Americans who have not died, but whose lives and whose families and friends' lives are in chaos because of their addictions. Like many Americans, I'm very concerned about where we go from here. In fact, part of my day job involves helping insurance companies figure out how to identify enrollees who are at risk because of prescription opiates so that nurses can reach out to help them stay well and alive. Unfortunately, street drug dealers don't contribute to the pharmacy data we're analyzing, but we're trying to figure out ways to find their customers too. But aside from where we're heading, I'm also very concerned about how we got to where we are. It makes no sense to fight a 10-alarm arson fire, but not even try to identify the people who set it and kept it burning. My concern about prescription narcotics began about 20 years ago. I had read that Purdue Pharma was selling a brand new, long-acting form of the narcotic painkiller oxycodone that worked for 12 hours. It was called OxyContin, and they were marketing it with a physician information campaign that claimed OxyContin is less addictive than other narcotics because it is long-acting. That claim immediately raised my clinical antennae because it is the exact opposite of what I had learned about addiction in nursing school, and it contradicted all that I had seen of drug dependence in my 18 years of nursing practice. It contradicts common sense. Well, not necessarily. They had a good story. Uh, But what I had learned in school was that Longer-acting forms of addictive drugs are more addictive than shorter-acting forms, not less. Yeah. To, this, to this day, I, I don't know how or why so many physicians swallowed this nonsense. It's completely paradoxical. But I hope we can figure that out, if for no other reason than to warn doctors of their own vulnerability to drug companies' false claims and the danger that this systemic weakness poses to their patients. There are many specific examples about how longer-acting drugs cause more addiction. But without getting into the technical detail, let's just say that from my perspective as a registered nurse, Purdue was acting like a bakery that tells its customers that they can eat endless amounts of double-fudge chocolate cake without gaining even an ounce as long as they chew it well and wash it down with plenty of milk. It just didn't make sense. Of course, now we know why it didn't make sense. It's because Purdue's claims about OxyContin in the 1990s were a sham. They were every bit as accurate and unbiased as the cigarette companies advertised claims in the 1940s that smoking tobacco has scientifically proven health benefits. Recent Esquire reporting has shed some light on questions about the family behind OxyContin. If you've ever been to a museum in the last few decades, you've probably encountered something named after the Sackler family. It might have been something as grandiose as a cavernous glass room sheltering a relocated ancient Egyptian temple or something as prosaic as an escalator. But whatever bears the Sackler name, the only reason behind that naming is Purdue Pharma Profits. The Sacklers hold Purdue privately. That is, unlike most of pharmaceutical manufacturers, Purdue is a mom-and-pop that doesn't answer to stockholders 
or anyone else other than the members of one secretive family with questionable business practices. You can think of Purdue Pharma as the Trump organization of the pharmaceutical industry. Up until now, the Sacklers have managed to keep a legal arm's length from their cash cow, but that strategy may be coming apart as attorneys are beginning to ask some very probing questions about who knew what when in the marketing of OxyContin and its role in the opioid epidemic. Although the Sacklers have never contributed to drug treatment, that may soon change. If the attorneys working on this case have anything to say about it, there may soon be a Sackler Drug Rehabilitation Center coming to a neighborhood near you. Another not quite separate part of the opiate story reached out and touched Donald Trump last week when Congressman Tom Marino, Trump's nominee for DEA director, was forced to withdraw his name from consideration. This happened when the Washington Post in 60 Minutes probed Marino's sponsorship of a law meant to protect pharmaceutical distribution industry from the DEA's efforts to prevent mass diversion of opiates into black markets by blocking suspiciously large shipments. Throughout the legislative process, the pharmaceutical industry had claimed that the purpose of this bill was to ensure that patients suffering from chronic pain would continue to receive their medications without interruption. They maintained this line of argument in spite of places like Williamson, West Virginia, where one pharmacy received more than a quarter of a million hydrocodone pills per month, despite the fact that Williamson has a population of fewer than 3,000 people. This amounts, I know, this amounts to three pills per day of just that one drug, never mind all of the opiates, for every man, woman, and child in the town. Now, since four out of every five American users of street heroin and fentanyl started out using prescription drugs, you can just imagine what shipping that much opiate into a place can do. The town of Williamson is now suing the drug distributors that consciously fed the opiates black market that devastated its community. Until it was exposed, the story of Tom Marino's DEA shackling law has been a win-win-win for its proponents. First, it was a win for the industry, which got a law hobbling the DEA's efforts to restrain its black market feeder flows. Next, it was a win for the bill's sponsors, who scored a cool $1.5 million in contributions from drug industry PACs. Finally, it was a win for the bought and paid for DEA foe Marino, who was nominated in true Trump style to fill the lead post of an agency he had done everything in his power to obstruct on behalf of his clients in the industry. And if you think that $1.5 million is a good haul, remember that the total congressional contributions from the pharmaceutical interests was $102 million between 2014 and 2016. You will be hearing more about both the Sacklers and the industry's leaky opiates pipeline <clears throat> and its efforts to keep it leaking as the investigations continue in the press, in the courts, and we can only hope in Congress, although I would not hold my breath for those. Biting the hand that feeds them is not Congress's style. Also, just this week, 
the President's Commission on Combating Drug Addiction and the Opiate Crisis issued its final report. Among the recommendations, the Commission suggests narcotic prescription training programs for doctors, a massive advertising campaign aimed at discouraging drug use, the expanded use of drug courts to redirect addicts into treatment programs, and the broader use of methadone maintenance. It also recommends that states should be awarded block grants to carry out programs aimed at combating the crisis, but it fails to suggest how large the grants should be. And block grants never work. We know that. Well, there's that too. The commission's report is also silent on proven life-saving and disease prevention approaches like needle exchange programs, the easing of restrictions on the purchase of overdose reversal drug Narcan, and the use of clean, safe, and supervised self-injection clinics that addicts can access to use drugs safely until they are able to curb their addictions. Such common-sense approaches have been harshly criticized as encouraging drug use, most notably by Maine's Governor Paul LePage, who in an official statement from his office last year stated that it was preferable to let narcotic overdose victims die rather than to give them Narcan, since they're all going to die of overdose eventually anyway. (sighs) Right right now, even conventional addiction treatment options are extremely few, underfunded, and very difficult to access. Long delays in taking people into treatment are the norm if they qualify at all. And Trump's health emergency declaration has so far put all of two cents of federal money toward the treatment of each narcotic-addicted American. In a recent interview on ABC, Kellyanne Conway suggested that we should shift massively over to inpatient addiction treatment. George Stephanopoulos remarked that this might be a great advance in treatment, but it would be enormously expensive. He asked her where the money would come from for the millions of prolonged inpatient stays. Obviously flustered at having proposed a very pricey course of action off the top of her head, Conway immediately shifted gears. She observed that stopping drug use requires strong personal commitment to sobriety and personal responsibility for drug users' own actions. Somehow she neglected to say where she thought the money might be found for the costly treatment she had strongly recommended about 30 seconds earlier. It must have become one of those alternative facts by then. So I guess you know where this is all going. We'll get anti-drug public service commercials playing on a loop, which will be tremendously effective because they never were before, but now, reasons. I'm (laughs) sure that... That those ads will be very best, most beautiful and fantastic ads that the world has ever seen, and that even Kid Rock and Ted Nugent will make some of them. The Trump re-election campaign will sell drug addicts' families inspirational Make Make America Drug-Free Again baseball caps for only $45, which should really inspire them. And Trump himself will get the crowds at his pep rallies to raise their right hands and pledge, to him personally, of course, that they will never, ever use drugs. Throw in some for-profit drug treatment and we're off to the races. And many people are saying 
that if all else fails, we'll have a tremendous, beautiful program of the finest, top-quality victim-blaming, like no one could ever have believed possible, using all of the best accusing words. Believe me. So remember, kids, it's all on you. Just say no. Back on Hopping Mad, J.D. Alt is an architect who has spent much of his career researching, inventing, and visualizing things that, if they could only be built, could well improve the prospects, prosperity, and sustainability of our society. He lives and works with his wife and architecture partner in Annapolis, Maryland. He's the author of the best-selling book, Diagrams and Dollars, the book which you have heard me refer to um, since before it was even released, The Millennial's Money, and his brand new book, which is why we brought him here today, Low Earth Orbit, a novella about the future. And I should say John's been on with us before. He was a fabulous guest last time, and we're super excited to have him back. Welcome, John. Well, thank you very much, Alice. It's good to be here. Your new novella, Low Earth Orbit, is really just lovely. I so enjoyed reading this. And I think about it in the same class with the essays of people like John McPherson and Barry Lopez and Edward Abbey. Essays I go back and read over and over and over and take different thoughtful things away every single time I read them. Low Earth Orbit is, it's thought provoking. It's, in fact, it's dream provoking. And I just, what inspired you to write it? Well, it's interesting that you should ask that question because in fact, um, the last time we talked here on your, your podcast, you asked me a question. You asked me something about how I thought uh, modern fiat money would ever become understood and accepted in mainstream America. And uh, that question got me to thinking uh, that it would actually be very interesting to, to try to imagine how that would happen. And so... That's really how the novella Low Earth Orbit kind of came into, uh, started started to, you know, work its way into my mind. And it, it's really, what it really is, is a story that, that imagines a set of circumstances and events uh, in which modern fiat money um, enables America to solve what is otherwise an unsolvable set of problems. And because it's able to do that, it actually is something that becomes understood and embraced. And uh, so the novel tries to imagine that and visualize it and, and dramatize it. And Low Earth Orbit manages to treat the, the intersection of architecture, economics, environment, society in this casual way, as if the relationship is all sort of automatically understood that the way those things touch each other is automatically understood and this light touch allows the book to be especially appealing particularly to me how did you come to that approach in other words this very sort of instead of you know being an economic tome it's this very light touch that um 
really makes it readable? Um, well, I guess it, it's um, it's the interrelation of all of those things that you just mentioned that's always been of primary interest to me. And I've always seen them as fitting together and, and interacting with each other. And, uh, you know, in fact, I came to economics and fiat money through architecture um, because there's a certain kind of architecture I've always wanted to build my entire career. And, and I realized some time ago that as we currently understand and manage our money system, uh, it could never be built. And modern fiat money, I came to discover, makes it possible. Um, so I, I, I tried to dramatize and even visualize this architecture to a certain extent in, in the novella. But all of, those, all of those things, the architecture, the economics makes the architecture possible, and the architecture makes the environmental uh, issues, or addressing the environmental issues possible. Um, and all those things together make the, the social innovations possible. So they're all kind of interrelated uh, in my mind, and, and I suppose that's the reason they kind of weave together so so well in the, in in the story. So, JD, in lower Earth orbit, you coin a new term, and so I want you to talk to me about the destructo bop. <laughs> okay, well, the destructo bop is my sort of title song, um, my title for the song that the present Republican regime is playing over and over again for the Donald Trump political base. And essentially, the goal, its goal is to make collective government so impoverished and ineffectual that nothing stands in the way of the corporate elite wielding total power over society. And it was a, it was a difficult chapter for me to write because I'm talking in this story about the near future of the Trump administration and the next election cycles. And I didn't want to, or I was hoping to avoid predicting something that would have already been proven otherwise by real events before most people could even read the book. So I, I kind of made it into this, this the performance of this, this song, which just kept repeating this refrain of all these things over and over again of, what the the political the Republican political regime now is is trying to uh, dismantle and turn into something that's that's incapable of doing what it needs to what it needs to do. So I, that's that was just kind of the name I came up for uh, the destructo bop, as if it was a some kind of performance that was going on over and over again. Well, I think I'm going to steal it because it's the perfect way to describe. It's the perfect way to encapsulate what the Republicans are doing. And I just, I love that term. So listeners expect to hear me say destructo bop many times in the future. Um, in lower well, I, orbit. Oh, pardon? 
That's okay. I, I, I like the term as well. It sounds like it would be a, a fun thing to actually make into a real song. Yeah, actually, it does. Um, in Low Earth Orbit, you are talking, as you just said, about really short-term things. You're talking about the short-term future. And um, these a lot of the things you talk about are things we used to think about as being much farther down the line. But um, And you talk about altering the jet jet stream to create a um a hydrogen water bomb in the midwest and you know houston just got 56 inches of rain in two days so near term is now you look a little prescient by the way buddy um and the idea of a colony on mars is also just fascinating so how did you arrive at your time frame for the overall book and events well the actually I think the time frame is pretty accurate. I, I did quite a bit of research on uh, the, you know, the, the, the Mars, the Martian space colonization plans. And uh, Elon Musk has stated his goal of SpaceX establishing a colony on Mars by 2028. And uh, as an interim stage for that is to, you know, create production facilities on the moon in the early 20, you know, 2022, 2023, something like that. That's all being discussed now. And all I did was I added a couple of twists to the plot. One of them, one of them being how the, this space mission was actually going to solve the problem of the U.S. national debt. <laughs> so I see all of that as you know, as as a fairly accurate timeline of what people are actually planning to do. I must admit the Houston hurricane caught me by surprise because it was so close to what I'd imagined. Yeah. Um, the only yeah the only difference being is that if and when it happens further north in the Midwest uh, and all of that rain feeds into the Mississippi River Basin, then what was a disaster in Houston becomes a, a major, major catastrophe. So, and in fact, I think the last time we talked on the podcast and you asked me what the circumstances were under which MMT would become uh, understood and embraced, I think I said that it was going to be a, a catastrophe. And so that's sort of the catastrophe that unfolded in in, in the book. And you, you openly question, and I think this is really um, key, you openly question the viability of rebuilding destroyed communities in the same vulnerable, unsuitable locations, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that there's, uh, it's going to be a whole range of responses to uh, as climate change unfolds here, but uh, I don't. A lot of communities will just have to be rebuilt in kind of a new, adaptive way. But I think there's not much doubt that a lot of uh, human communities are going to want to be relocated completely, and uh, this is really an overwhelmingly difficult thing to confront. Uh, but it's also a huge opportunity to start rebuilding in a way that heals nature's systems rather than continues to destroy their viability. And uh, the interesting thing is that, it, and I think this 
is what comes out, and this is the central message of the, the novella, is that the only way we're actually going to accomplish those enormous, confront and accomplish those enormous challenges is by actually utilizing uh, the modern fiat money system that we that we really have. And of course, I completely agree. <laughs> now, <laughs> here's here is um, I think my central question in in this entire interview, and um, it brings me to what you refer to as the Alpha Matrix, Leaves, Archiblots, Bumpy Film, all all of these architectural concepts. Easily, my favorite part of the book. Can you give listeners just a taste of these so they know what they can look forward to when they read the book? Well, let's see. They, the Alpha Matrix is the the name I gave to in in the book that I gave to the particular kind of architecture that I've always wanted to build uh, that I referred to earlier in, when we were just talking a little while ago, but that I realized could never be built with our present misunderstanding of money. The thing that's always, always fascinated me about modern fiat money is that with it, we can afford to build and own things as a collective society, which we can't afford to build and own individually. But it also and gives it, us it. I uh, just to hop in for just a second. The cool thing about the Alpha Matrix is that with the Archiblots, which I'm sure you'll get to in just a second, it also gives us the opportunity to own those things as individuals. In other words, it feeds both sides of the paradigm, and that's what's so brilliant about this. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's always been the central premise of of this architecture, this kind of arch, this architectural strategy that I was talking about, and that is that it, it embraces both sides of the equation, which historically have, have either, it's either, it's been an either or kind of option uh, for building architectural communities. And the, and the, you know, the one option is that it's either done on a, on a completely socialistic basis in which it's, it's controlled and managed by the state, uh, in which the state becomes the author of the architecture and the owner of the architecture and the dictator of who lives where and what and what they can do with it, then that whole paradigm. And then the the other option to that is the, is the free market capitalist option, which is the architecture is built and owned by by a wealthy class of, of developers, and people have to rent it from them. And, you know, one way or the other, either through mortgages or who are actually paying rent. And so the, the kind of individual is, in both of those cases is lost. And it, unless, you know, you happen to be a very wealthy person who can hire an architect <laughs> and design your, your custom home on the, on the mountaintop, you know. So, but for the ordinary person who struggles to find a place to live, they're, they're really caught in a, in a it, it, they're really disempowered and disengaged from the whole process in either one of those two systems. So the, the alpha matrix is a, is, a, is a strategy of architecture building that kind of bridge, bridges those two uh, 
those two paradigms, and, and it it, cre- it it creates a collective ownership of what I call the alpha matrix or the enabling structure, and then that enabling structure makes it very easy and fast for individuals to build or have built uh, dwellings that they that they can aff- actually afford to live in. So it's a it's kind of a hybrid hybrid strategy that that I think really holds the potential to solve a lot of a lot of the problems in in affordable housing and creating affordable housing. Wonderful um, affordable housing, amazing, cool, um, environmentally right. sensitive affordable housing. Right. Yeah, and it's and it's a process that's fun and is very creative and it, it engages people in, you know, in, in a, actually going through a process of, of deciding within a certain, within a set of parameters, how they, how they want their architectural space to actually be set up uh, to accommodate the, the way they want to live. And it, and it helps them to do things in the right way in, in terms of, you know, managing water and managing waste and, and managing elect, electrical power and all of those things, it, it helps them to, to be on the right side of the equation on all of those issues as well. So um, that's the, the, and I'm, this is, a, this is a, a design issue that I'm still kind of, circling around and looking at from different different ways and trying to actually visualize it and talk about it and make it something that hopefully at some point in the future could actually happen in some way and the thing that makes the thing that makes it happen or would make it possible is in fact uh, if we understood our our money system and understood that that as a collective society, we can build and own these structures. Uh, and at the same time, these structures allow us to privately build and own our, our own private spaces. So that's the idea <laughs> so in, a, in a nutshell. Just one of the technologies that you talk about in the book is called Bumpy Film. Would you tell us a little bit about it? Well, now a lot of it, a lot of the uh, techno, most of the technology that I talk about in the book is, in fact, um, in the pipeline or or currently uh, operable. Um, one of them being the um, uh, the the little device that, that generates. Um, uh, drinking water from, uh, hu- from taking humidity out of the out of the air, um, but the bumpy film photovoltaic system is kind of my hope for the future. In other words, one of the, one of the photovoltaic uh, systems right now uh, have to be very carefully oriented to the sun, and um, they can't be shaded in any way because it interrupts the circuits uh, between the cells. And so there, there's a certain kind of difficult architectural difficulty in, in using them. Um, 
So in in Disney, I I was looking ahead a decade, and I was hoping that in a decade we would develop almost, if if it's not a paint, a spray paint or a, a fabric of some kind that can be put on roofs that can generate electricity from sunlight, no matter you know whether it's cloudy or whether it's facing north or whether it's facing south or wherever whichever direction it's facing that it can it can generate electricity and because of that it may not generate a lot of electricity but because you can put it on so many surfaces that it would actually produce most of the electricity that a, a community of buildings would would require so that's a little bit of fantasy or a little bit of science fiction that's that's in the in the novella. I'm sorry if that disappoints you. <laughs> no, it it actually, but those kinds of ideas and that kind of reaching and thinking and imagining and dreaming, I think we have to be doing those things, right? I mean, that's how you get from you know from where we are now to you know saving the planet. So I think that's all part of the. It has to be. It simply has to be part of the conversation. Yeah, well, no, I agree. And when I when I think about buildings and when I think about these communities of buildings and structures, I I imagine it I, that I'm imagining a uh, a living creature, you know, uh, a new kind of species. And I'm saying to myself, well, in order for it to function in a survival way, you know, what features does it need to have? And and I imagine that this architecture would require this kind of skin that had, that had this capability of doing that. So that's sort of where the idea came from. Well, folks, that's all we've got for the top part of the show, but we'll be back in extra mad with JD and I have some more questions and I want to thank John for joining us today uh, on hopping mad with his wonderful book, low earth orbit. Will and I send out our thanks to Netroots Radio, to our show's editor, Michelle LaShore, and especially to all of you for joining us today. You can find us on the broadcast version of the show, Hopping Mad, on Netroots Radio at 8 a.m. on Mondays. The full podcast version of our show is usually free and includes an extended interview that we call Extra Mad. The podcast can be found on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, and other internet podcast apps. Our website is imhoppingmad.com, and you can can listen to or download or comment on the show there we'd love to receive your comments and we make every effort to answer them uh you can find us on twitter at i'm hopping mad will is on twitter at will mcleod 99 and i'm there obviously as arliss bunny hopping mad is the place on progressive radio for deep dive down the rabbit hole coverage of politics economics and of course carrots until next week cheers next up k grow in the morning here on netroots radio we're back on hopping mad extra mad with jd alt and his new book low earth orbit jd to quote from low earth orbit you have this you have this wonderful quote and you say um and i'm actually uh, shortening it a bit but you say this Affordable housing as a social right is one of the fundamental goals, then, of the Alpha Matrix strategy, but it's not the primary fundamental goal. No, the primary fundamental goal is to completely and forcefully repudiate the socialist capitalist models, which puts both authorship and ownership ultimately in the hands of the elite class of rentiers, either private or governmental. Close quote. Best thing 
ever. Would you like to add anything to that? And you were just talking about that earlier in the interview, but would you like to expand on it at all? Uh, well, maybe I, I would. I, the only thing I would say is that that maybe this is a lot simpler than those words make it sound. As I'm listening, as I'm listening to you reading them, I'm I'm trying to figure out now. I think ways to get away from from all of that kind of socio-political jargon and try to. I'm trying to figure out now ways to to express all these ideas in a, in a much more straightforward, concrete, you know, simple way. And, you know, the simple idea is simply this, that the, the community owns the matrix, which is an enabling structure that makes it easy to build dwellings that people can actually afford to own. And it's really just this, you know, as, as simple as that. And, but at the same time, when you get into it and you start looking at the history of it, that's when you, that's when you get involved with all these other terms and ideas of, you know, socialism and capitalism and market economies and, and all of that stuff. And, and I think that that's important. But what I'm trying, what, I, what I'd like to do now is to try to figure out a way to talk about it in a, in a way that's very simple and very concrete that, that people can can connect with without it being tied to some kind of ideological confrontation, if you will. That makes sense. So there are a couple times in the book I actually really laughed and really, uh, you just, you brought me up short because we're, you know, it's this very, you know, interesting and intricate description of a number of things. And then we come to Ikea on Mars and um, uh, Mars and similar missions are quite literally um, to be for profit activities after the initial, essentially, exploration, which has been paid for by uh, public funds. But progressives tend to shy away from that concept, but you don't. Why? Well, for me, I, I guess the issue is is really simple, and I, and I try to make this, this clear in, in the book, I think, and that is the way we presently run our money system uh, works very, very well to build and accomplish things that make a financial profit. Uh, but it makes it very difficult to build and accomplish things that don't make a financial profit. And understanding the modern fiat money makes it possible to logically do both of those things, to have them operating on parallel tracks, side by side. And that these two tracks, one track being business ventures that, that generate financial profits, and the other track being business ventures that don't generate profits, but generate things and serve, uh, you know, they build things and provide services that we, that we really need to have, that these two things, um, these two tracks can, can operate side by side and they can, they can be mutually reinforcing and, and, and help each other uh, move along in the directions that we need to go. So, and I liked that. You know, I liked not... the idea that it wasn't, I mean, we, it is so common to portray capitalism and socialism as being in opposition to one another. And here you envision this hybridization where they work in parallel. They reinforce each other. They um, support each other. They make each other more successful. And I love that. Yeah, I do too. Uh, <laughs> 
it's uh, and when you look at what we're confronting, you know, right now as we speak, it, with with what Congress is trying to do with the tax plan, you can see that we're yeah. just completely tied up in knots, where we imagine that the only things that we can actually do are things that make a profit, and if they don't, if they're not profitable, then you know. There's no way that we can figure out how to pursue them. We're just stymied, even though we know we desperately need to do them. Yeah. So it's just it's to, it's totally strange the way the way we have ourselves so so tied up in knots over this. And it's and it seems from my perspective, it just seems very very simple <laughs> to to have both of these things operating at the same time. So, and the amazing thing is that it is simple. That's the that's the incredibly frustrating thing. It it is actually simple, so that you know, yeah. you know, that's when you just want to you know drop your head on your desk and you know pound your fist on something. But in to quote from Lower Thorbit, you say, um, "What is striking to see so clearly? The one thing that AI machines are incapable of doing, they are incapable of being consumers." And a close quote. And the thing about that that's interesting is that, of course, what Republicans are trying to tell us is that what drives an economy are um, the wealthy and businesses. And what we know drives an economy and the reality, the fact of what drives an economy is demand. In other words, consumers, because without demand, nobody's selling anything. So and in Lower Thorbert, you're saying, you know, you can do a lot of things with AI, but what you can't do, what machines can't do is be consumers. So you're proposing that we generate consumers by maintaining these two parallel systems, um, you know, these for-profit and these work employment programs, essentially a job guarantee program, correct? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. And, and we've, uh, we've talked about JG on this show several times, so tell us a little bit how yours would work. Well, I don't think, you know, what I'm proposing is uniquely different than, than what everyone else is is, uh, is talking about. The MMT kind of leadership is has a very specific set of uh, job guarantee program um, proposals out there now. And... Uh, you know, I'm supportive of, of of their ideas, and I'm not really looking at anything different than that. I think what what fascinates me is is that because of the direction that artificial intelligence is actually going in here, and very quickly, we're going to have to redefine what we mean by work and employment. You know, it's yeah. really as simple as that. And so, I'm fascinated to try to imagine, and I do this. In, in the novella to, to a certain degree to, to try to imagine how that redefinition might unfold and what, what the, what, you know, the, the new kinds of work and the new kinds of employment that people will, will be getting paid to do, because as you just said, that's exactly what has to happen. And, and somehow the, the corporate leadership here in, in, in the world, really, it seems obviously they're extraordinarily intelligent people, but they seem completely clueless to the fact that they are, in fact, uh, putting themselves out of business in the sense that they are making it, they're making it easier for them to produce products, but they're making it more and more difficult for people to earn the money that they need to buy those products with. So 
that's one of the that's one of the, the, the supreme ironies of, of the way things are unfolding here. And I think the response to it is going to occur. I don't know whether I think the the, the job guarantee program is is a great idea, and it's something that that obviously is going to have to happen at some point. But I, my instinct is that it's going to come from the bottom up somehow. The people are, people are going to start reinventing work and, and reinventing employment on their own somehow. And then it's a question of how we're going to pay them to do it, to do what they're get whatever it is they're going to do. But there's so many. The, the interesting thing is there are so many really really useful things to do that people can do for each other and for themselves that right now it would, we know it would never even occur to us to pay them a salary or a wage to do those things because we don't value them in that, in that sense. We don't value them in, in the sense that they're contributing to making profits. But if we just, you know, step back from that a little bit, we realize, well, you know, if they're doing something that's useful, even if it's just useful to, to themselves for their own health or their own, uh, you know, enlightenment, why would they not be, why is that not a valuable thing to do in the sense of being able to earn, you know, a living wage for doing it? So you describe this, kind of, you describe this world I very much want to live in. Yeah, I know. Yeah, well, that's what we're all looking for, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So um, another thing that just brought me up short and and uh, made me laugh out loud, but uh, a place where I think you you may have made an error was um, and here's a quote: uh, Congressman Paul Ryan, former Speaker of the House of Representatives and now an elder statesman, close quote. <laughs> but um, the uh, of course we're going to take him out in 2018. Uh, we're taking him out to the woodshed in the 2018 election, folks. Uh, remember, vote, 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 <laughs> you know, register, yeah, vote, right. get rid of Paul Ryan now before he becomes an elder statesman, God forbid. <laughs> well, I, uh, I appreciate your, your sentiment. And I, uh, I, uh, I think actually, given the tax reform that he's now proposing, I don't think that he would even agree with the op-ed I wrote for him in, in, the, in the book. It seemed pretty safe at the time that that would be something that he would actually that he would actually write and an argument that he would actually make, um, and I think probably he still believes it. But uh, I agree with you. It's it's uh, it's highly questionable whether he he'll actually make it into elderly statesman status. Although you know he he is in line to become president potentially. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's if you want a chilling that moment of chilling thought. Um, you and I both attended the first international modern monetary theory conference this summer. What were your most resonant takeaways? Well, I think the the thing that was most striking to me was was uh, a couple of things. Well, one was the number of of uh, young people, uh, millennials. Who were there, you know, almost representing that generation of people, and how engaged they were in these issues, and you know how how what a, what a wonderful grasp they had of of the issues and the the actual you know functioning of 
of a fiat money system and, and uh, the whole set of mechanisms that we're, we're talking about here. Uh, and, but then the other thing was the number of people who were not economists. There are a lot of lawyers there. There were a lot of social worker professionals and graduate students in all kinds of fields uh, that were... Environmental activists. Were, yeah, environmental activists, exactly. And they were all trying to take this idea and figure out how to actually apply it to... to, to in a concrete way to actually accomplish uh, real things. And, and that's, that was very positive and very refreshing because, I mean, that's exactly my perspective and uh, how I got involved in it. And so it, it was nice to see it because, the, the, you know, the economists obviously have, have a great deal to offer in, to this whole set of, to this whole topic. But, at the same time, they seem, they have a tendency to seem, with a few exceptions, they have a tendency to seem satisfied to, you know, make the abstract arguments and then declare victory and and that's it, rather than taking it to, to the next set of steps, which is, okay, well, now we have this tool. Now what are we going to actually make happen? with this and how are we going to actually do that? And there was an awful lot of that, that kind of energy at the, at the conference. And that's, that's what made it, made it a lot of fun to be there. Yeah. Uh, The, um, I was with you several times when uh, other people from the conference were introducing you to new people by saying some version of, um, hey, so this is the guy who wrote the bathtub book. And in every case um, of the person you were being introduced to, the person, the new person lit up and then gushed about diagrams and dollars. And in the MMT community, and I imagine for anybody who's seen diagrams and dollars, the bathtub has become this widely accepted analogy. For listeners who have not seen it, would you describe how you came up with it and why the bathtub makes such an easily relatable, obvious, correct explainer and what it feels like to be the bathtub guy? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because actually I didn't invent the bathtub analogy. Uh, I first saw it in one of Randy Ray's books. Really? And I'm not sure which one, yeah, and I'm not sure which one it was, but that's my memory. And what I did, and I'm not even sure that he invented it either. So, uh, but what all I did was I, I, I took it and expanded it into a set of general plumbing diagrams, okay? Um, you know, every... Everybody understands plumbing because, you know, they use it every morning when they brush their teeth and every night when they wash the dishes. So it's just kind of this intuitive kind of mechanical flow set of issues that that, that are, is really easy to visualize and, and understand. And so well, I took these... Because we all know how a faucet these, works and we all know how a drain works. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I just took the... I expanded the bathtub into a, a kind of a complete set of plumbing diagrams that I then manipulated uh, to construct a kind of total picture and understanding of a fiat money system. And it is actually in building those diagrams 
is how I personally began to really understand the whole thing. And so I suppose people reading that book, in a sense, they, they sense the light bulbs going on in my own mind here, and then that helps them to, to see it. And that's what, part of what makes the, the, uh, the book such an effective explainer of the, of the, of the whole the set of ideas. But I, I can't claim to be the, the inventor of the, of the bathtub. <laughs> well, folks, if you, if you want one um, book that you can either download or purchase uh, on from Amazon, for instance, that um, encapsulates MMT in a way that you can literally show a picture to your friends and say, see, it works like this. This is the book you want. It's super straightforward. It's super easy. It's super accessible. And it's just, um, it's brilliantly explained. It's why it was a bestseller. It's why it continues to be so popular in the MMT community. And it's why um, JD is so uh, well known in the MMT community as, yes, the bathtub guy. Um <laughs> JD, thanks so much for joining us. Is there anything else you'd like to say about the conference, about MMT, about uh, low Earth orbit that I have um, managed not to ask? <laughs> well, no, I, I appreciate very much the chance to talk to you and everybody else about uh, these ideas. And um, you know, I hope I hope people will read uh, low Earth orbit, and if they do, I hope they'll write a review uh, on Amazon for it because um, these ideas are really struggling to, to get out in, the, in the, the bigger world and to you know, connect with a larger audience. And so I, I'm, I would ask you know, everything, everybody, anything they can do to help do that is, would be greatly appreciated and uh, would be extremely useful. So that would, that's the only thing I would like to end by, by saying. I, and I appreciate the opportunity to come and talk to you, Arliss. Well, thank you, J.D. We've loved having you in. And folks, it is like, you know, it is like I have been saying for a long time, if, you know, if the environment matters to you, if um, social causes matter to you, if, um, you know, jobs matter to you, if healthcare matters to you, modern monetary theory is the way we get from where we are now to where you want to go. In other words, it's the way to speak to your subject, the things that most matter to you. And that's what that's why I do this every week. That's why JD is writing these books. You know, that's that's why so many activists and millennials were at this conference this summer. It's because people are figuring out this is the way. This is the the um, handle by which we carry away the pot. To use an old, you know, an old saying, an old analogy. But um, I want to thank you all for joining us today here on Hopping Mad, and uh, we will be back next week. And uh, feel free to um, comment to go to I'mHoppingMad.com and please. Uh, go to Amazon and download Low Earth Orbit. It's um, it is absolutely wonderful and uh, well worth your time. Uh, cheers and many carrots, and we'll be back next week.